Welcome to the Engineering Podcast. This podcast is all about Porsche. There are four different playlists. Firstly, the building of our REN 550 project, that's the REN builds episodes. You can also listen to our tech talks with your host, Paul, that's me, where we chew the fat with experts on the technical aspects of Porsche. You'll also get to hear about my car and my co-host cars in the Waffle episodes. Finally, we'll walk through Porsche history together in the Heritage episodes. If you want to support the YouTube channel and podcast, then head over to Patreon forward slash Reengineering. Thank you for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reengineering, the YouTube channel and podcast. There's three episodes coming up. Um, this episode, part two, um, and then a third episode that's slightly different, but um, it's going to take you through um, the journey from the start of being interested in Formula One all the way through um, to two guys, uh, one working currently in Formula One, one working in Formula Two, but has worked in Formula One for a long time with McLaren. The other chap uh, now works for Alpine in Formula One. Um, it, it's fascinating to hear about their journey from being, you know, uh, their start in, in motorsport um, and what it's taken for them to commit to a life um, on the road um, and, being, and the dedication required to be working in top tier motorsport. Um, so that's what these three are about. If you're interested in that, if, if it's something that, if you're interested in Formula One and you just wanna get the behind the scenes take, this is for you. Um, if you are thinking and considering, a part of what's really important about engineering is starting people out in engineering, um, whether it's sort of a supporting role in a team or whether it's actually working in design, you know, this is all important stuff. So um, sit tight, buckle up and Let's get started with Nathan from Alpine. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back to Tech Talk. This is the Engineering YouTube and Podcast. Um, I'm here today with Nathan. Morning, Nathan. Morning. You? Good, thanks. Uh, welcome to Engineering HQ. We are going to talk about uh, everything to do with Radical and start in Radical, where you are now, uh, the difference between road cars and race cars and your experience of that, a bit of travel, um, and I think you've got some stuff you want to kind of yeah. talk about, yeah. so um, yeah, so welcome, and, and guys, make sure you like and subscribe and, and you know, share it with your friends and, and, and help us uh, expand the channel as much as you can, it'd be great. I think for me, there's a bit of synergy between what he does, especially most in general really, and what Radical do, but it feels like Radical take it to the next level, whereas Lotus kind of, they do their primary road cast, they yeah. kind of have a race arm and a kind of engineering team. Radical kind of, well, it feels like anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but Radical is more the other way around. So it's like the racing side of the business is kind of their primary arm and the road cars are yeah. kind of the, the support to that main bit, bit of business. So that yeah, no, that's, that's correct. Yeah, so they started off as a track day car manufacturer okay. and then more recently they've been building cars since 96. Um, and they've sort of stayed on the same rough skeleton since then, so they haven't changed much. So in terms of the chassis design. In terms of chassis, so if you look back at, to a chassis back in '96, yeah. all the suspension and the main parts of the chassis are all quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the good things about the radical is how it feels. So a lot of car manufacturers will make a car that goes as quick as they possibly can get it, yeah, yeah. but then it's not as accessible to our customer base, which is 
really people that have done quite well doing their own business yeah. and then they want to challenge themselves again so it's something that they haven't necessarily done before like driving oh, okay. a car yeah, yeah. they'll jump in and the good thing about ours is that you can just jump in and you'll be all right it doesn't matter if you're driving at six temps or eight temps or nine temps yeah, yeah. you can still like it all destroy anything you've experienced in your road yeah, car on the track so the amazing thing about those are like the shape it looks like an lmp car yeah you know, like you look it looks <clears throat> way beyond kind of um what you typically see as a track day car yeah. it's yeah phenomenal looking piece of kit so yeah. but it's interesting you talk about the chassis remaining broadly the same as it was back in 1996. I'm assuming that there have been revisions over time, will be it small incremental changes or is it literally they are, you know, there is no change between Yeah, so the most successful model is the SR3 and that is, I'd say, 99% the same chassis. Really? So it's always had a bike engine in it. So the only things that really change are like the engine mounts. So there's pickup points and you've got the engine mounts. So they'll change for different engine configurations and oh, stuff okay. like that. And then obviously you've got left hand and right hand drive, which mm -hmm. are different just to sort the steering column out and things like that. Yeah. So, but fundamentally all the suspension geometry and things like that have been the same yeah. since the start. So yeah. I guess if it's not broke, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, again, going back to both Lotus, you know, the Elise 1996 all the way to this year, seeing the end of Lotus Elise now and, and so to an extent you could argue the same with Porsche the 911 it's broadly rear engine rear wheel drive you know and, and the dynamics of how it handles and drives they try to retain that all the way through albeit they've got bigger and bigger and more complex back right to the start so almost before you're thinking about a job before you're thinking about um, you know, what you're going to do as a career but your natural kind of, you get up in the morning and, and you're doing or thinking about what, what you know, it, it was anything to do with engineering or technical work or anything, a thing, you're sitting there playing with Lego or anything yeah. like that, or, or was it, or was it, it it's just something that came later and it, you know, it just sort of found its way into your life. How, how did that come about? So, yeah, I grew up on the Isle and as you know, if you, if you want to work in motorsport, it's probably not the place you want to be. Yeah. Um, and as a kid, I'd always, so part of my routine was on Sunday I'd go to my granddad's mm -hmm. we'd have a roast dinner and then we'd sit and watch F1 in the afternoon or yeah. whenever it was on um, so that was like that was quite early on I'd say like five four five years old mm. um, so naturally just got into that a lot of kids the usual kids are like football and they'll get into football but mine was F1 so I'd really? be obsessed about that yeah, yeah. and then what sort of era was that what was it what that was, was the like 2004 okay. that, that sort of 2004 onwards I'd say, yeah. maybe maybe slightly earlier, but yeah and as a kid I'd always, I'd have like toy cars or whatever, I'd steal a screwdriver from the garage or whatever and then I'd just start taking bits apart and mm. seeing what was inside and putting them back together, cleaning it if I had to and stuff like that, so yeah. I think that's, that's where it sort of stemmed from, I was like I want to work on something and I like F1, so I guess motorsports. Start joining out. Did, yeah. did that inform any choices you made in terms of school or anything like that, or was it kind of? College, definitely, because that's when you really have to. Start thinking of, about what you want to do. Yeah, you have to, to just do fully stuff. commit at that point to yeah. what you want to do. But school, like I did GCSEs, I did art, I did engineering yeah. um, and ICT, so I was quite good on a computer. Yeah. I was quite creative, so hence the art, and then the engineering was sort of focused towards that car and manufacturing process and stuff like that so I'd say yeah towards the end of school I really 
decided that's what I want to go to go towards. Um, and that's when I found the National College of Motorsport at Silverstone. So that was oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, year eleven doing my GCSEs. I was like, oh, I need to decide what what I'm going to mm. do next, sort of thing. How did, how, how did you find that? Was it something just? I think I was just researching like motorsport courses. And yeah, yeah. There was a couple, some of which were really far away. So I was like, mm, it's probably not going to work. Because mm. um, I was going to just do motor vehicle on the Isle of Wight. Yeah. Because so, that was I did my work experience at a Citroen garage. Okay. So that was sort of like a, I had contacts from oh, there. So and, test, uh, sort of oh yeah, that was brilliant because I'd never picked up a tool. I'd never worked on a real car yeah. prior to that. So it just gives you that basic knowledge of like simple things like this is a ratchet, mm -hmm. three eighths quarter drive, half mm -hmm. inch, those sorts of things that you that get overlooked by the people that are in the industry, but then are quite hard to like, you don't know at that point, do you? So it's good to. I think that happens to my day job as a safety engineer for, um, uh, for a company that works with air traffic control. Even that, you know, I, I came to that job three and a half years ago uh, and there's a lot of assumed knowledge. And it's not really fault, it's just the fact that people have been doing that job to a professional standard for a long time. Um, and it's almost, and I think, I think it's true of lots of um, industries and people who are working in there a long time. You get to a point where just stuff, don't even know you know it, you know, it's yeah. full autonomy. You, you don't know what you know anymore because you've been doing it so long. Yeah. But then when you're coming in, it's really hard, I think, anyway, to to figure out kind of like, well, what do I need to know? What, you know, what stuff do I need to commit to memory and what stuff do I need to kind of just have, have absorbed and then, you know, I can record it for you. Yeah. I think, and it's one of the things that engineering is going to try and do is bringing people in given the theory is great you know like going to university or going to college and doing an apprenticeship all those things are fantastic but there's a there's the for me anyway the problem we're trying to solve almost is alongside building a car at all is giving people the opportunity to to learn that bit to, to do that for real in a low pressure environment that can that mistakes can be made yeah. uh, but also at the same time if somebody's absolutely smashing it and they're you know doing great it's all recorded and it's all on youtube and yeah. they can demonstrate their skills to become more so I think if you know if you can find that balance, perfect. Yeah, I think that was what was good about the college is, um, so yeah, and it went to got an interview, mm. um, which was difficult at that time because I wasn't the most confident person. Yeah. Didn't really. Um, so an interview was quite like a nerve wracking. It was yeah, my first yeah. proper interview, so that was quite how, a big how thing. Did it go, that first interview, was it? it was actually alright. So yeah. I was terrified before. I was absolutely like. So I was still lived on the Isle of Wight at this point. So we had an hour on the ferry. He had the tour back more, an hour and a half drive up to Silverstone. Yeah. The whole way, terrified. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then that, that drive does you no favours, does it? No, you're just thinking about it the whole get, way. You're kind of more nervous, <laughs> yeah. like, oh no. So, but once I was in there, it was just, I think it's a case of, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that when you truly do want to do something, that comes off no matter how oh, you feel. Really, so. Yeah, yeah. Like from our talks previously to this, you know, that your passion for what you do comes across straight away. Yeah. So, um, and I think you're absolutely right. You can tell the difference between somebody that is, it's all they want to do. You yeah. Know, between somebody, you know, that, it, it, it just, it almost, you don't need to talk to the person for that long, but you'll get that yeah. immediately. And that's what we need. So, guys, if you're watching this and you're an engineering graduate or, you know, and you're kind of thinking about joining us, um, that's what I want to see. You know, you can have not the best phrase in the world, but what I need from you is complete commitment and kind of that um, you know, real, real desire to do it. So um, yeah, bear that in mind when you apply. Um, 
Yeah, so, so at this point you've, you've been accepted yep. at Silverstone. Uh, what, what next? So I think that was sort of early, early summer, I'd say, and then um, so started in September. And the way they do it is you have, I think it's three days a week. So I travelled up on the Sunday night, yeah. came back on the Wednesday night, and then worked when I was back home. Um, and they do so it's two thirds theory based. So they'll teach you the, they basically just teach you the basics of every system on a car. So like you'd run through push rod suspension. You'd run through the basic operation of an engine, um, braking systems, cooling systems, mm. all in separate. So you do a system at a time, which yeah. is quite good because you get quite a detailed explanation of each one. And then the third day, you do a workshop day where, so say you did cooling systems in the week, yeah. you'd then go into the workshop, which is a really nice workshop to be fair. It's like, mm. like a race to foot, proper race team spec, wow. um, painted floor, white, white cabinets, white ceilings, white everything. Mm. Um, and then you'd, um, so you'd say drain, drain the coolant, remove the rad, you check all the pipes, you basically look at the system that you learn in theory in detail on the car. So you'd yeah, yeah. like check all is the hose clamps. Is it set up on a, on a rig or is it actually in a car? I uh, know it'd be on the car. So okay. you'd, the car would be completely running, ready to go on track at this point. So right. you'd take all the bodywork off, set the wheels off and then, yeah. And you drain the coolant, check mm. all the hoses, check the clamps are tight. Um, and then the same for the braking systems. You'd say take off a caliper, take the pistons out, put new seals in, yeah, right. stick them back in. So all the stuff that you would do as a, if you're working in a race team, you then learn on that day three, which I think is really that hands-on experience. It starts embedding you all. Yeah, so it, it doesn't matter how much you know in your head, if you can't physically do it with your hands, I think that's quite an important thing. So that's mm. one of the things they what about um just thinking about what you're saying there stuff goes wrong right so you know people will cross read something or yep. kind of, um, you know they'll think they've bled the cooling system and they'll just start you know overheating or you know yep. pressurizing or whatever so do they do they talk to you through because those things must happen so at that point when, when that stuff happens are they kind of working through that stuff with you and yeah. trying to figure out what went wrong and all that yeah stuff? so there was a couple of times where that that did actually happen so I think it's a lot better for that stuff to happen while you're at college because that's you're there to learn. So you like, you learn how it works, but you also learn how to deal with stuff when it does go wrong. So mm. like if you crossword something, they'd get the time set kit out and they'd show you how to fit a time set and things like that. So yeah, they they were really good to me. Um, and part of what they what they offer is they they're all people that used to work in the industry. Yeah. So they've got good contacts, the teams know them, they know the team. So if they think, oh, this guy's pretty good, we'll farm him out to do some work experience. Right. They'll just, they'll so basically. That, that, again, this is, this is again key, I think. Um, and it's key for us as well, is, is building those networks, understanding mm. who, you know, and I don't, I don't mean, no, it's, I think, yes, there's gonna be like a technical ability. If that person's particularly good at something and it's a company or a race team that need that skill or experience, they, I think there's also um, it's really important to understand is the the personality and the, the how that might fit with because obviously you know different groups of people are going to be they're going to operate in different ways. Some people might be you know run a really relaxed team and it's kind of all kind of everyone's pretty chilled out. Other people you know operate in a very kind of clinical yeah. you know, lab kind of a, in, mm. in a way. And, and I think I'm sure that you know, as they were kind of working out who who would be best fit with where that would pay into it as well. Yeah. Is, is that person going to fit within that team? Yeah. 
So you so so you kind of you've gone through your training now, you've you know been successful at that, um, and you start thinking about it, they kind of um, doing some work experience. Is that when radical came in at that point? No, so that was that was probably two years afterwards. So while I was at the college, one of the big things while you're at the college is trying to get some work experience because yeah. like I was sending my CV out left, right and centre just trying to get even just if it was work experience, I was happy. But at that point, you don't have any motorsport related experience. All I had was the garage I worked at and the job I had when I was at home. So it's, it is difficult because at that point, you're all, you're all, it's an equal playing field. So if you have that work experience prior to sending your CV out, I think that's really good, which is why well, I think what you're doing is great because you're mm. giving people that experience to then help some, them some get a job. It, so yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's that plus, and I think this is where Wrenching is doing something that hasn't been done before, is where it's great having someone in your CV. For me, it's even better if you can, if I was an employer, if I was a race team or kind of um, an engineering company or whatever, is to be able to watch some videos and see how that person acts, how professional they are, how dedicated they are, how they present. Because especially when you get to the point where you're kind of more senior in your career, the expectation will be you'll be customer facing at some point. Yeah. Whether that customer is a person that's commissioned the project or whether it's you know a you know another company that's procuring something from you, you need to be able to go and present not only to be able to sort of talk about the technical detail, but actually also be able to kind of stand in front of somebody and kind of really have yeah. a conversation and, and not and not having to overly prepare for that, you know, to be able to walk yeah. in and just be able to doing exactly what you're doing now is you know, have an open conversation and you've got all that obtained knowledge. Something on your C V doesn't demonstrate that. It doesn't no. demonstrate any of that yeah. stuff. So you're absolutely right. This is for this, this is one of our key kind of what can we do to benefit people and I think if we get it right, mm. yeah, we really can yeah, yeah, for sure. successfully. Yeah. Mm. So you your work experience then, did you have any success in your CVs out here? Yeah, so the team that I eventually got work experience with was actually the team I started working with. So that was the only one I had. So I think it was Thruxton I ended up going down to Thruxton. They had a test before the year. So they had three cars. I think they had three mechanics at that time. So I was just sort of shadowing, cleaning, doing whatever, yeah. just trying to keep busy. And um, so yeah, we did the day there and then got offered a job shortly after that, I think, as an apprentice. Okay. So, and then- How did I, that feel, that, that moment where you get the- Oh, it's, yeah, no, it was good because um, where there's so many of you, you're at the college and not not everyone that I went to college with has got a job in motorsport, really? whether, whether that's by choice or just- just successful. Yeah, that's it. it. So, so to know that you're one of a couple that did, it's quite a good feeling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I ended up moving, I think I was 17 at this point. So I moved from the island, lived, lived at home with my parents, uh, moved from there to Oxfordshire. That's a big jump, isn't it? It, yeah, especially at the Personally, point. Personally, I'm talking about now. Yeah, yeah. the job, just, just kind of, uh, how old were you at that point, though? Seven, yeah, 16, 17, 17. I Yeah, yeah. Like so, that's, that's a... And I wasn't the best equipped for it in terms of, like, socially, not, not a super confident person. I wasn't one of these that would go out and be able to do anything in, like, the outside world, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it was a big jump. Like, geographically, it was a big jump. And for me, personally, actually ma making it happen and doing it, doing it, it was a big jump, so. Um, yeah, I was there for probably a year, just over a year maybe. So yeah. we we ran the old Formula Ford cars, so not the yeah. one, not the ones with the treaded tires. It was like the slicks and winged ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then that eventually turned into F4 the next year. Okay, cool. So just as a mechanic, so I was lucky because um, after I got the job there, one of the mechanics left. Mm -hmm. So I think I would have had a lot lesser 
important role if he'd have stayed. So the fact that he left, I almost was pushed into um, his role, which obviously I didn't have the basic knowledge that he had, but it forced me to, like I was made to do that job, which was, could have gone. a good thing? I think it was yeah. because you just get chucked into the deep end. You, you either manage it or you don't. And luckily I did, but um, yeah, you just, you learn everything at a slight 200% rate then yeah. because it's not fed to you and well, we can't give them too much responsibility because yeah. you still know it was, this is, we'll this let is him at it and, and yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that was, that was definitely good for me. Um, Cause it's things like at that time in my career, a lot of things felt pressured. Mm. You feel even the simplest things like change, if you had a crash or if the car crashed and you had a couple of hours to fix it, that would feel like, like a real immense pressure. Yeah. But then you just get, you just adapt to it. It's like, like what you said earlier, you just become normalized to it. And mm. if it happens, it's part of your job and you've just got to get on with it. You don't feel it that takes pressure. Time, so. doesn't it? To go from kind of that sort of point where you just, you know, it's almost time to do the baton and say, right, you know, this mm. is your job now. And just that's the big goal and go, okay. Yeah. You know, don't, you, I, for me anyway, this is how I would work. I, I certainly wouldn't want to be, I don't think I can do that. I think it's always better to, you know, if someone's trusted you to do something, they can see that you're capable of doing it. Yeah. Um, even if there's some self-doubt in there. Yeah. Um, A lot of it's in your head as well, isn't oh, it? Like you can, yeah. Two years in Formula 4. Yeah, yeah. Um, got towards, towards the end of that stage and kind of wanted to do something different because, yeah. again, what, I, what we said earlier about adapting to, I think I just got a bit too used to it. I was used to feeling like it was a thousand miles an hour and yeah. feeling under pressure all the time. And then that sort of, <clears throat> that fades away. And then I think that's the point where I started to look for something different. Okay. Um, at that point in my life as well, I was quite ambitious in terms of, I had this goal of, I want to work in Formula One. And that was all I had yeah, in yeah. mind, um, which I'd say is probably, probably faded away a bit now because I've found other avenues that I enjoy and things like that. So. Um, so yeah, at that point, I looked for something else, uh, and that's when the radical thing popped up. Mm. I think it's my mum actually sent me the link to the oh, the really advert, but um, it was an engine building job, okay. and I was like, I can't do that. I was I've never built an engine in my life. I don't know, I, well, I know roughly how they work and yeah. the systems around it. I know, but I don't inside the engine because that was always at the F4 races. You'd have you'd the look after the like they yeah. It's been literally boxed, signed off as a sealed unit. Yeah, so you can't, you can't, you can't even change the turbo. You can't change anything. So that stuff, you just got that's that's the engine manufacturer's responsibility. Yeah. I don't need to worry about that. I'll just think about the stuff I do need to worry about. Um, so anyway, I applied for that. Uh, went down for an interview. Mm -hmm. um, I actually knew one of the guys at Radical worked for one of the teams I knew from Formula Four. So that's yeah. quite a good. A, a lot of motorsport is about who you know. I'm sure it's the same in other, other industries, but um, so I think that helped quite a bit. Um, so I started there in, I think it was January 2016. Okay, it's been five years now. Yeah, I've been there a long, yeah, long time, yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, so yeah, I started off basically starting again at, at apprentice level again, mm. trainee engine builder. So I was put with one of the senior guys yeah. in the engine shop. <clears throat> um, and we started off. I think started off on rebuilds, so um, we use the SR3 uses a high booster engine, yep. which is quite heavily uh, modified from what was in the bike. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, just working with him, stripping things down, learning. He's done it for years and years, so you learn that once you pick up a part and you go, oh, that, that failed here quite a few times and I've seen it crack there. Or So you just learn. He teaches you to look in the common places like where things run in bearings and things like that. So you need to look there, check for cracks here. So it was all those, the attention to detail thing, the two things that I think are important are cleanliness yeah. and attention to detail. So particularly with engine building, that really hammers that those two points into you because because you can create an engine, can't you? 100%, yeah. So one, you forget to start on one bolt in an engine. It doesn't matter if it's just in a, like an oil pickup bolt, yeah. that'll fall down, it'll go somewhere bad, and you'll, it'll have a bad time. So, And then the cleanliness thing, if, if an engine's had a failure, all the oil galleries could have debris in it. So you need yeah. to make sure when you're stripping that engine, a lot of the times, if it's a small failure, the same cases will get reused. Yeah. So you have to make sure every bung is taken out, you flow, the cleaning solvent through every every way you can just to make sure that that because if some stays in there it yeah, could get dislodged and you've spent 50 hours building that engine well, no, obviously spent a fair amount of time rebuilding that engine you fail to do that one kind of routine piece of maintenance and yeah. then all of that then the same thing happens again 10 hours later yeah. or yeah so and yeah they're about a 40 hour build the boosters so right. um well like a say a failed engine that would be a quite heavy 40 hour but a typical rebuild is probably 25 to 30 hours. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I did that for a year, a year and a half, I reckon. Mm -hmm. So part of that job was supporting the race series. Yeah. So back to what I've said in the Formula Ford era, the engine manufacturer was someone else's problem. That was now my problem. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, there was a few of us and we'd run around, we'd, um, we'd download all the cars after the races. So typically, yeah. We'd have a grid size of 25 to 30 cars. Okay. So there'd be two or three of us. Um, and we'd yeah, go around downloading the cars, checking all the vitals. For the entire grid? Or for yeah, the for the entire grid. So we had the works team, so that's like radical works. Yeah. Say we ran four cars, and then there'd be five, six, seven customer teams, mm -hmm. so which totaled up to the 30 odd cars. Yeah, right. So we'd, part of the entry fee was will offer support for you. So if you have any issues, me or whoever else was doing the job at the time, we'd come over and give you a hand, right, okay. either diagnosing or physically fixing it as well. So if there was a time constraint, um, like for example, if a fuel pump went between a race, you only had an hour, we'd then jump in and help um, get the car out, which, which is good like for me, um, going from a mechanic, you don't, have that many problems to deal with. So really it's only like a car hits a wall, you've got to fix it. Yeah. That's the only real time you feel that pressure. Whereas now your job is just to jump in pressured situations, yeah, yeah, yeah. help them fix it under a time limit. Do they, again, forgive me for not knowing the detail, but do they have, is it like 25, you have two races in a day or is it one race per day? Or yeah, it depends. It depends really. Usually it's at least two sessions a day. So it'll be say qualifying and race, okay. or sometimes it'll be three or four. It right. just depends on what package you're on and how the weekend's structured. Like if it's an endurance race on the Sunday on another championship, you'll probably be condensed into the Saturday, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So you'll have a busier Saturday, but then say Sunday, you might only have one race. Um, so yeah, it was a good thing for me because you, like I said, the only time 
you get involved is when it's it's really hit the fan and they can't they've they can't deal with it anymore so they've come to you to try and help so yeah you just it's deal with that, I mean, at the start it was quite you know because yeah, yeah, yeah. when i first started they probably knew more about the car than i did and i was the guy helping them so you yeah. sort of think oh um, so you do feel a bit of the pressure at that point but like i say again like you just you just get used to it i think you just acclimatize like now someone will come up to me with an issue i'll have thought of the three things that i'm going to check first and yeah. know in my head because i've seen it a few times that it's going to be one of those three things so yeah. you just don't feel that same pressure like i never it's rare now that i'd see a problem and go Oof, i'm not sure i can fix that no, there's good. always like there's always something you know to check or uh, you just i guess it's self-belief after doing it for so long you yeah, believe that it's not a problem that you can't fix. So. It's nice, nice place to be. Yeah. yeah. Although, yeah. so the basic question is, I've noticed a couple of times in your career, you've um, got to the point where you're kind of comfortable. You've got a view of, not necessarily now, but five or ten years' time, where you're this, this, you're like, no, no, I'm right across the home, and I'm, we can cut this bit by the way if you don't want to. Yeah, no, no. Um, yeah, but you've got like a future, because you were talking about F1 before, is that is that still, is a, there's a flicker in there? Or is yeah, it, part of me, Part of me does want to do it, but I don't know whether that part of me is just to say that I have done it. Because yeah. I think back then that was all I knew, and I thought motorsport was just F1. Like yeah. you'd have a motorsport ladder, F1 at the top, and that's where I wanted to go to the pinnacle. Um, whereas now I think I've experienced different roles. I've met a lot of good people at Radical, uh, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that I'll be there for the rest of my life. But at the minute, I'm enjoying where I'm at and. Yeah got yeah, a good job I've got a good life outside of work now which is yeah. one thing that I didn't really have time for in the early stages so yeah I don't know I'm just sort of taking it as it comes really I'm I don't have a lot of people say I'm going to be here in five years ten years but I don't really yeah. think like that I just sort of take a year at a time and yeah I'm happy at the minute so I don't need Maybe to change that's much what it's about, isn't it? just, yeah let's get into the differences between road, the roadside of Radical and the, or the, I say roadside of, road, uh, road legal side of Radical yep. and the pure race team stuff. One of the things that we spoke about off camera as well, the building of this Rengineering 550 Spider, it's going to look effectively like a traditional 550 Spider. Mm. The balance we've got to try and find design for purpose is, is understand what we're designing it for, what is, what is its principal thing going to be. Um, my preference is uh, that it's not an out and out racing car. Um, I think I'd like to see it used for like, melee, melee, or something like that. You know, yeah. like, do, do some, you know, some touring and things like that for sure, you know, competitive stuff, but but not in the kind of traditional, like they just train it to a track and just smashed around the track, probably crashed it a full time. I don't want, my preference, I mean, whoever ends up buying or collecting cars will, will, will make their own choices, but I don't want to design it for that. My preference would be for it to be a, a mix, broadly a road car or performance-based road car with the ability to take on track. Yes. Go back to a radical, how, what's the, for you, when you look at those two, if you had two lines and line up side by side, where would the principal differences be? What, what is it the start, what, what would you go, well, clearly that's significantly different between the race car and the road car. Yeah, so ours are more, so our road cars were sort of road cars that were meant 
like you could drive them to the track yeah. and you'd have a good day on track. They, they weren't necessarily, like you wouldn't take them to the local Tesco or anything no, like no, that. No, it's, I appreciate that, yeah. it's more of, yeah, taking away that having to trailer it aspect okay. of, um, so the, in terms of differences, there's not a huge amount, obviously really? tires, you can't run slicks on the road. So that's one obvious one that would have to change. Uh, ground clearance is, okay, yeah, yeah. so you typically run either a longer push or a long damper just to, just to lift the car up away from the ground. So things like speed bumps and just general thing with a race car is that you run them so close to the ground for performance. For aero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But things, so if you're at a track with big curbs, you'd catch the corner of the splitter on one. So naturally stuff deteriorates quicker on the race cars just because you have to run them that low to be fast. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, that's just a natural consequence of running that low is that you have to repair the splitter quite often or fit a new one. Um, so that's another one. Um, like weight and comfort is another thing that, so our, the road cars we have, they'll have like, you'll have pads to, just to more for aesthetics than anything mm -hmm. to cover up like the chassis rails and the oh, okay. ugly bits like that. Yeah, so we'll have less agricultural because you know, race car is again, every gram matters. Yeah. Yeah, so on the race cars, we'll have the main chassis tubes and then we'll have like an alley skin that goes on top of those just to, co just to cover the gaps. The literally. needs to, it said, you can't expose, have exposed yeah, that's it, chassis yeah. that's So, see, so yeah, on the road cars, we'll have carpet, we'll have obviously you know, like handbrake, things like that that you don't need on the race car. Yeah. Um, and then like the pads, the pads on the side to make it look a bit more, not, uh, to make it look nicer. Yeah. Uh, other ones like lights, yeah. you wouldn't have like on a race car. You just got sometimes you just run DRLs. You don't even have main lights if you're just right. doing sprint racing. You don't need big lights because you're not racing in the night. So um, things like that. So indicators, hazard lights, mm -hmm. fog lights, even number plate lights. All those things you have to put on, which is obviously extra weight in looms and control course, boxes yeah, yeah, and no, things like that. Yeah. Really surprising when you've got, you know, you think of one, because it can't be really much, it's going to be lights and, yeah, like I said, some PEs and bits and pieces mm. in there, but you add all that together, take it all up and you know, tube it and stuff, and then suddenly you've got something that's 20 kilos. Yeah, yeah 100%. Kilos is a lot. Yeah, and especially in when a car weighs six, 700 kilos, that's yeah, quite a big yeah. percentage of the total car weight is. Yeah, yeah. So you can easily make a big difference by either so adding it on, you slow the car down, but taking it away is one of the things that I'm doing now with the de development stuff is trying yeah. to optimize what we've got. And those little, those kilo here, kilo there, things make a big difference in terms of the final product, so yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, so you're now looking at optimizing the vehicle. Um, and you, we were talking about how uh, weight makes a huge difference. And I, this is a Colin Chapman thing as well. It's not even Colin Chapman, it's every race team for every race car. Or if you're building a you know really great road car, just want to strip away any you know. And this is we're talking about. This is the really hard bit though for me is NVH and building this lovely road effect, effectively performance-based road car, um, and finding the balance between stripping and making everything as light as it can be, but then also not making it unusable, yeah. not making it kind of something that someone gets in and they're exhausted after ten minutes driving it. Mm. Because I, I really, really want to see this when it's finished, be something that someone can go into, trust that they'll you know, hit the start, they'll not just turn the key or whatever, and it, 
it starts up and it'll dry and it'll it's you know it's going to idle and it's going to yeah. like and it's really easy to get seduced into going well if we took you know some way out there if we kind of you know did this or if we kind of put some lumpier cams in whatever it is and then you get closer and closer and you're not sticking to your original design brief and what you wanted to achieve so for your stuff for you, i guess this is the race side now that you're kind of trying to optimize in a reduced way yeah. Kind of, yeah. yeah yeah i think the the road car thing the the minute you try and make it good for a couple of things you just add a level of compromise to it so say you want to make it quieter you've got to put more sound in and in which is heavy mm. or a big thing for the race guys is component life in so okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have nothing is built to last forever um, and if it was it would weigh a ton and it would be slow as anything so you have to build up like a realistic expectation of how long should this component last mm. how long is a customer expecting it to last so you can't it's a balance you can't have you could make things wafer thin that you'd have to replace after every race weekend but the customer's not really gonna be too happy about that so you kind of you make it to last long enough to go that that's okay it's a it's a car meant for a track so you, it does need a bit of um, a bit of love every now and again mm. so that way you can make it as light as possible so if if you're going to make it the strongest thing in the world you'd add weight and then if you add weight the cars can go slower so yeah. it's yeah it's finding that balance of reliability and performance that's like the constant constant trade-off yeah so how do you so you going about that now how do you how do you do that where do you where do you start so yeah the the sr3 has typically been through the last 20 years the most popular model mm. um, and then recently we've just released the sr10 last i think it was last year yeah so that is sort of the the best of both from the sr3 and then an older model which was the sr8 so yeah. the sr8 was a really cool car um so it had a hayabusa v8 in it so it's basically two of the hayabusa bike engines nice. made so we'd machine our own cases out of billet um wow. or car sorry um to make our own v8 and then uh, we stick that into a chassis that's quite similar to the sr3 so it was the sr3 which at this point has about 220 horsepower mm. so it was that car but with 350 horsepower wow. so it's a 10 and a half wow. so yeah it's it sounds incredible it looks great so it we were trying to get the balance between those two so the only issue with the sr8 was that the engine because it was so highly strong mm. it wasn't the most reliable engine so it would, uh, you'd have to rebuild it every 40 hours and the cost of the rebuild was massive. So we wanted to get something that slid in the middle. So similar performance, but massively lower running costs. Yeah. Um, so we picked, usually the development, because we've kept the same chassis for a long time, usually it starts with an engine. So you go, I want to use this engine. And then you work on plunking that in the car and doing all the bits around it. So yeah. how, how big do the brakes need to be because it weighs this much? how much cooling does it need because it's making this amount of power. Yeah. Um, so we picked the 2.3 EcoBoost engine that they use. Yeah, they're really popular now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. so they're using the Mustang and the, the RS. Um, so we do a fair amount to it. So we lighten the crankshaft because obviously it's got the big counterweight in there for the road car. Yeah. Different turbo, um, cams. Um, and then with that engine, 
we've got the service interval up to 80 hours at a minute, which is a, well, it's double of what the SR8 was. Um, and it does, um, the other issue with the, the road cars, if you read like Focus RS forums and things like that, is um, they have a lot of head gasket issues. Um, so the block, the 2.3 block is actually an open deck, mm -hmm. which means like the area around the cylinders, like it's basically a big gap for the water to go in. Yeah. So like normal engines will just be a flat and you'll see a few little holes going into the water galleries, whereas this is open. So we machine our, our own block guard, which basically presses into that gap, which just adds a bit of support for the cylinders. So right. what was happening was um, either the head could warp, which yeah. is one of the common common problems you'd have with it, or with just how volatile the engine was at the power that we were making, the cylinders would be would not because they weren't supported. They were rustling, and then, and then the head gasket would fail. Okay. Um, so all those things, which is stuff that you learn when you're developing the car. It's not we didn't start off with that spec engine. It's it's a it's an evolution of. So you start testing it, something naturally breaks because you've never run it before. Yeah. And then naturally you just keep fixing the stuff that breaks and eventually you end up with a really reliable car. So, mm. Yeah, that was how that was born. So, yeah. Good, wow. Mm. And yeah, we've sold probably, I think 50 or 60 of them now, which is in a year of production is, I think it's the most successful car we've done so far. So that, I guess, yeah. clarifies that you've done a good job developing it. Totally. You, so uh, so it's, then what I guess this conversation would have got me thinking of is that we're going on one-on-one and the, I'm, I'm not, no intention of rushing this. So, um, you know, development time and kind of going through it almost on one instance before we get to the point where it looks finished <coughs> and then allow an extra amount of time for testing. Mm. Whether that testing is road testing or probably a bit of both and trying to find its limits. Um, it would be easy. We're not going to build the engineer just straight out there. There, there would be things that we can do here um, that the undergraduates do or myself or the other two guys that run this do. Where we know our limitations though, we'll make sure we outsource to companies that are, you know, they've done this like yourself, you know, you, you know those EcoBoost engines with Lilo, so the last thing you would do is kind of go, well, we're gonna start from scratch. Mm. Go to, you know, partner with somebody, a company that have kind of produced whichever um, powertrain we use um, and rely on them for their expertise to say, well, this can operate for indefinitely, you know, with sensible service patterns and stuff. Um, but also it gives us what we want in terms of um, fun. And I think, it, 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 so it's tempting. And uh, the bit that worried me now is hearing you talk about how, you know, how frequently things fail and, and you know, you're building a number of these cars to try and achieve a one-of-one -one build car where everything's kind of fit to cab model, you know, and you know, we've done some testing and stuff. It's, there's an element, I guess, of, of afterlife support we're gonna have to give to whoever purchases the car yeah. because ultimately, it's likely, not through a failure of us, but it's just likely through the evolution of building a car, mm. stuff will potentially fail and we'll have to kind of rectify that. So. Yeah. I mean, even on road cars, like stuff still goes wrong on road cars, and there's thousands of road cars. So I think allowing that extra time is great because mm. stuff does take longer than you think. You can have a plan, but stuff just, like you'll have delays, you'll, have, you'll get something back and it doesn't quite fit right, or doesn't, mm. you could go, oh, I could make that better by shaving that bit off there, you save a bit of weight, or yeah. you know, it might and fit still, nicer. We're still gonna try and do that, so, you know, there's still, starting with a you know, fundamentally flawed chassis, a beetle chassis is, is, is not the greatest platform, but at the same time, 
perhaps we need to look for ways of kind of making sure we you know produce weight within reason so not so it's kind of um, unable to perform for a long period of time but try and keep the weight down wherever we can like again following Gordon Murray and the, in all of his projects but especially the T50 now watching the Dario stuff and and Gordon presenting about that it's fascinating seeing how his choices and I think this the stereo system you've got this you know I think it's the same for the for the F1 as well. Dictate said, right, go away, you know, we want to put stereo in it because it's effectively a road car. Um, but the speaker drivers have to be X weight and yeah. the stereo has to be X weight and the, the wiring has to be, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Still like to apply that same logic to this because, you know, what he's producing is, um, you know, incredible. I don't know if you've seen the, the engine the yeah, yeah. running. It's yeah, sounds incredible. It's real, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So if we can get kind of anywhere near in terms of you know embodying those principles and the same thing with you is understanding kind of how you know how you're doing this daily and then him learning from you guys and sort of you know listening and making sure we're paying attention to those things where you say oh this is what we do and this is how this can fail but we're really careful about making sure that we understand the innate flaws to that design that initial design because the EcoBoost was you know it's produced in its tens of thousands probably you can probably buy them. Yeah, I think I know they did this with the a lot of the V8s for America block on a crate. Effectively, it's not even a block. It's, I think it's a fully kind of built engine. Yeah. I think it's probably even got coolant in it. You just literally throw it in and start yeah. it up and it works. I'm pretty sure they do that with the EcoBoost. They'll do this. Yeah, that's thing. what I mean. That's what we get. Is we it? we buy them from Ford and strip them down from a complete engine. And yeah, like you say, they've got oil in them. Right. They've got coolant in them. So yeah, we just take off the bits we don't need, put our bits on, and then yeah. um, they go over to production and get fitted in the cars. Yeah. So. Back to the attention to detail and cleanliness thing. So, say you're running the car as a mechanic, um, cleanliness is so important because over anything really, you can be really good at fixing crash cars or anything like that. But if if you don't clean the car, you can miss things like so if a crack, say an upright starting to crack, if it's covered in brake dust, you're not going to see that crack. Yeah. So if every time you come in, you clean the car. When, as you're cleaning the car, you're touching every component and naturally your eyes get drawn to things like that. Mm. Whereas if you neglect that, um, you're going to miss these yeah. cracks. So that attention to detail and looking at every component, every join, every weld um, is really a massive part of what we do um, mm. when we're developing stuff. So. I think, yeah, it's, again, I think that's probably a difference between somebody that's working predominantly on road cars Servicing and MOTing a car, you know, a road car, it's this basic check. You almost assume that those things won't happen. Yeah, it's all very <coughs> routine, whereas one thing, when you've got a race car on a stand, it's all static and nothing's moving, yeah. whereas you've just got to you understand that all these systems, when they're on track, they're not static. So if an oil line is on a bit of wiring, that you go, well, that's that oil line's spiky and that wiring's obviously just made of in got insulation on it so that's going to chafe so mm. i'll put a cable tie between those two to stop that it's little things like that or i've got an oil line on a rubber pipe mm. that's going to vibrate and chafe through and then you're going to have a water leak so it's just thinking about the way things move and the way things work to extend the longevity of the car so yeah good mate look, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me um and no problem kind of yeah, I think it's fascinating what you do and I wish you all the very best for the future. 
not to have you back on probably when we've got a bit further down the road. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of walk through some of our plans, take a look at you know what we're doing, you know, feedback what you think, you know, if you think there's changes to be made, and um, you know, it's, a, it's an open book and happy to take feedback. So yeah. thank you again, Nathan. No uh, problem. Guys, thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, and if you're listening on Spotify or, or on any of your um, podcast platforms, um, yeah, do keep following us. Check back to listen to the previous two tech talks. Um, we've also got Heritage. Heritage, just for, um, to give you a, a bit of a, it's, it's the backstory of Porsche and how we got from the very early days um, all the way through to where we are now with the 992. Um, the, so we've got Heritage, we've got Waffle, which is uh, myself and Mick, GT4 Winchester on, on Instagram. Go check him out. Uh, we're just gonna be talking rubbish for the most part. It's, yeah, don't expect too much from that, but other than that, just talking crap. Um, and then obviously the tech talk stuff and the build is a little bit more sensible and a little bit more kind of uh, professional. But yeah, um, yeah. So Spotify on on uh, Instagram is Frenchening UK on Instagram, Frenchening on uh, Facebook and Frenchening on YouTube. Uh, thanks for again. Take care. We'll see you next time. All the best. <laughs>